If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, which is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Too Afraid to Ask series, Professor Rebecca Rist of the University of Reading tackles the Crusades. Putting the questions to Rebecca is Dave Musgrove, Content Director on BBC History Magazine and HistoryExtra.com. Welcome to the latest in our Everything You Want to Know series. Today, we're looking at the Crusades, and our expert is Professor Rebecca Rist, Professor of Medieval History at the University of Reading, and obviously an expert on the Crusades. Her books include The Papacy and Crusading in Europe, 1198-1245, and Popes and Jews, 1095-1291. And she's written many articles on crusading, including a contribution to a panel discussion feature that we ran in BBC World Histories magazine about whether the world is still living in the shadow of the Crusades. You can find that on our website at historyextra.com. Now, the format for this series, for anyone who's new to it, is that we've asked you, our readers and listeners, to send us your questions about the topic via our social media channels at History Extra on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And alongside that, we've done a bit of research into what sort of search terms people are entering into Google and included those bigger, more obvious questions too. So, Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Uh, we've had a lot of questions to get through, uh, so we've had to 
trim down the selection a bit because we have far more than we can deal with. I suppose before we start, that just is indicative of uh, uh, the level of interest in the Crusades. A lot of people find it a particularly fascinating topic. Do you find a lot of people talking to you as a sort of historian of the Crusades and being particularly interested in it? Yes, thank you. Um, I do. And and for a number of reasons, really. Um, some of my students are coming in because they know already that they like medieval history. And when we think of the medieval world, we immediately think of the Crusades, figures like Saladin and Richard the Lionheart. But also, I think, uh, people with more modern history interests, um, interests in Middle Eastern history, uh, who want to know a little bit about the earlier period, uh, as it were, before the Ottoman Empire, before uh, the Brits took over in Palestine and so on. They want to know a little bit about that earlier uh, medieval history where Christians and Muslims were pitted against each other. So I think there's yeah two reasons why, why the Crusades is a very popular uh, topic for discussion, um, I find, with my students. Okay, great. Right, so let's jump jump into the questions. So uh, the first few are, are, are kind of fairly simple ones, which are ones that we've uh, we've pulled out of Google. So these are the ones that uh, uh, people are internet searching a lot. And the, and the first one uh, is uh, is um, a pretty a pretty big and uh, uh, well a very big question: Who won the Crusades? So um, I don't know how easily you can answer that. How simply you can answer that? Yes, yeah, start with the big questions, right? Who won the Crusades? Well, um, as we know, the Crusader states were lost. Uh, the final bastions of the Crusader states were lost in 1291, having been founded originally in 1099, and um, they were lost to Muslim forces. So in that sense, obviously, the Muslims won the Crusades uh, and the Christians were defeated. However, of course, uh, the Crusades spans a very long period of time, as I say, uh, starting with the First Crusade, 1095, ending with the loss of Acre in 1291. And there are many individual Crusades within that period, some of which were won by the Christians, by the Western Franks, uh, like the First Crusade, um, and others by Muslims. Um, so, for example, the uh, Muslim forces were successful in the Fifth Crusade in uh, capturing Dam. And of course, then some crusades, we have these partial victories. So if we take the third crusade, Richard the Lionheart was partially successful in the sense that he was able to um, maintain, take and maintain Acre. Uh, But of course, um, he didn't win back with a a military victory, uh, Jerusalem. So, as I say, overall, the answer to the question is the Muslims won and the Christians lost. Um, but, as I say, we need to look at individual crusades and see how each one pans out and look at particular battles, which are very important, particular sieges, and, and, and try and um, evaluate within each crusade um, who comes out as victorious. Okay, thank you. Right, and then the next uh, Google question, which you answered a little bit, but there might be a, 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 a more specific answer. How did the Crusades end? Okay, so the Crusades end when the Mamluks, so this is one particular M- Muslim group, capture Acre in 1291. Um, Acre had been the centre um, for decades of what remained of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And so it was the most important city that was still left of the Crusader states. Um, and 
It falls to the Sultan, to the Mamluk Sultan Khalil in 1291. And then in days that follow, the rest of the remaining Crusader towns, Beirut, Haifa, Tyre, Tortosa, then there's a domino effect and they fall. So this is 1291, the end of Outremer, as they call it, the end of uh, the land across the sea, um, what we think of as, as modern day Palestine stroke Israel. So that that defeat at Acre um, by the Mamluks in 1291, the golden age of crusading comes to an end. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then again, you've 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 slightly gone over this, but but a, a quick answer: How many crusades were there? Ah, well, this is very debated in the historiography, i.e., by historians writing about the Crusades today. Um, for me, there are eight Crusades. I'm, of course, for this podcast, talking about Crusades of the Near East, not crusading within Europe. Um, because obviously there's a great crusading movement which comes out of these original crusades to the Near East. But for me, there are, in the, in the Near East, there are eight crusades. So if I just run through them very quickly, um, the first crusade, obviously where the crusaders, um, take Jerusalem um, and set up the Crusader states. The second crusade, which is uh, a response to the fall of the first Crusader kingdom of Edessa, the Crusader kingdom in the north. The third crusade, which is launched to try to win back Jerusalem. And of course, perhaps it's the most famous one for us because we think about Richard the Lionheart. Um, the fourth crusade, which doesn't end up in the Holy Land at all, but the crusaders sack uh, the town of Zara and then Constantinople, of course, very famously. The fifth crusade, which is an attack that the crusaders make on Egypt, on Damietta, the town of Damietta in particular, and this ends in failure. The sixth crusade, very interesting because not papally driven, not authorised by the papacy, but a crusade where an emperor, namely Frederick II, goes out under excommunication, in fact, and has a lot of success um, and makes a truce with the Sultan and, and gets Jerusalem back for 10 years. So that's the Sixth Crusade. And then finally, I like to think of the Seventh and Eighth Crusades, which are the two crusades of Louis IX, which are launched res retrospectively at Egypt and at Tunis. So eight major crusades during our period from 1095 to 1291 but let's not forget that there were also much more kind of minor expeditions. Uh, people were taking a passage out to the east, small groups of fighters between these major crusades as well. So we can think of the Baron's Crusade of 1236, for example, or uh, the crusade right at the end of our period by Edward, Prince of England, sometimes called the Ninth Crusade, um, a sort of appendage to um, the attack on Tunis, which I talked about, the Eighth Crusade. So these little um, ventures going on between these major responses. And by major responses, I'm talking about, you know, great papal calls being, being put out there and very large armies um, then taking up that call and going out to the east. Okay, brilliant. Uh, right, uh, one more from Google, and uh, this, this I'm sure is impossible to answer, but um, uh, people want to know how many died in the Crusades. Yes, thank you. Um, before I try and give some estimates, I should just, there's a bit of a caveat here. I mean, it's 
very difficult to estimate because of our source material. Medieval chroniclers are notoriously unreliable when they give figures of battles and losses and so on. Um, other types of evidence, like, for example, charter evidence, may help us, you know, to, to put it together with the chronicle evidence to get a better picture. But nevertheless, you know, we're dealing with very unreliable sources here. As I've also already said, some of the Crusades are big expeditions and others much smaller. So these these factors need to be taken into account when we try and make estimates. I mean, there are figures ranging everything from 1 million to 9 million over the whole period from, from, as I say, 1095 to 1291. So John Robertson, very famously in his short history of Christianity, a very old book now, but a sort of seminal book from the 1920s, he had that really huge figure of 9 million. But I've seen other historians who've done estimates of, of, of much lower numbers. Of course, it depends whether you're um, when I'm, I'm when I'm giving these figures, I'm certainly including not just Christians, but obviously Muslims and also all the, as it were, all those who followed the armies, not just the combatants. So, yes, there are estimated figures within the historiography, everything between one million and nine million. Um, I think because historians regard it as so difficult to try and get any accurate figures, they prefer in general, certainly in the recent historiography, to try to give estimates for individual battles um, rather than for a crusade overall. Um, and I think that gives us a little bit better sense of kind of, of, of what's going on, the carnage, the losses and so on. Um, so, for example... Um, the First Crusade, the, the prince's element of the First Crusade, when they set out um, after they've heard Urban II's speech at Clermont, historians these days tend to think that probably there were sort of seventy to 80,000 people who took part in that expedition, maybe some more joined en route, but those kind of numbers. And then when they look at the fall of Jerusalem um, to the Christians in 1099, they estimate that between somewhere between 700 and 3,000 people are actually killed by the crusaders in Jerusalem. I'd probably go for, yeah, the higher end of that. Um, but sometimes I think those kind of figures are, are, are more helpful. Um, but yeah, overall, estimates between one million and nine million, um, I, I think certainly one million seems far too few to me. Um, so I would go for a much higher figure, five, six million. Um, so uh, as I suspected, a difficult one to answer, but we're certainly talking significant numbers of people. Oh, uh, certainly. In, in, yeah. in any event, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, now we've got a question from uh, Marjorie Leonard, who contacted us on Twitter. And her question uh, is, did the Crusades have an economic impact on England? Yes, I thought this was a Excellent, really interesting question. Um, and the answer is yes, in lots of ways. Um, the Crusades allows England to open up its trade routes and its links with other countries. And this in turn helps to lead to the growth of towns, of charter fairs, of uh, mercantile activity and so on. So in the long run, the Crusades are helping um, England to blossom in terms of its economic input and its its kind of wider links with with Europe. Um, so that's obviously a major way. Um, the growth of towns. Then you see some historians have gone to argue that 
as money becomes more and more important to the country, um, and um, as we get the growth of the power of money and therefore the growth of the power of capitalism, if you like, this will have a long-term knock-on effect on um, the, the diminution of the feudal structure of medieval England. Now, of course, historians have endlessly debated, well, what do we mean by feudalism? And there's been quite a sort of pushback against too rigid an idea of feudalism in, in our period. This is the high Middle Ages. But nevertheless, this system of lords and vassals, which has been um, the norm um, in medieval England, perhaps starts to get a little bit watered down, as I say, as a sort of um, as the towns emerge, become more powerful as a result of trade and trade routes. And as we start to get a sort of burgeoning middle class um, who, who will carry out that uh, mercantile activity. So an opening up of England to trade with other countries and, and an increase in trade routes is definitely one of, uh, you know, it has a major impact. Um, something else to think about. Crusading is a very expensive business. I mean, this has been shown um, by historians, for example, Riley Smith. Um, crusaders often had to borrow money to take part um, in these ventures. And so, of course, you're going to get money lending, growth of money lending um, at interest, people um, going into the money lending business, lending money to crusaders. And of course, the Jews come in here. Um, we even start to get in the papal letters reference to uh, crusaders. Crusaders and specifically Jewish money lending. We can think also about the Templars, um, uh, their uh, important houses um, in England at this time, and the Templars are, are organising increasingly um, credit um, credit and loans with people, um, setting up a sort of um, an early banking system. And of course, that, that early banking system, well, we can see the, the, the seeds of, of modern banking, that exchange of credits for goods and services. Um, and these Templars being there to, as it were, um, stabilise uh, the money sources. So, as I say, the seeds of, of modern banking, because crusading is so expensive and people need to um, borrow money to go on crusades. Um, also, lots of other important impacts. Kings, English kings start to um, levy taxes um, for crusading. Very famously, of course, the so-called Saladin tithe, which was levied um, for uh, the third crusade to win back Jerusalem. Um, and these crusade taxes over time, not just in England, but also in Europe more generally, prove very unpopular. And, and there are often riots and, and public discontent about their levying. Um, but kings are determined that they're going to make an impact. They're often going with, with the crusade armies themselves and they want to make sure they're properly funded. Um, also, they're a bit of a slippery slope because once kings get into the habit of um, raising these crusade taxes, they can then actually start to raise money for their own private wars um, and just stick the, the word crusade on them, as it were, and then get away with it. Um, I think in terms of um, the growth of industry in England, um, we know that there was some mining in Devon and Cornwall um, during the High Middle Ages. Um, and of course, um, copper, tin, these metals, silver, they're important, um, obviously, for making armoury, uh, for making weaponry for, for, for the Crusades. So it's possible that there may have, that mining may have been helped uh, by the Crusades. Certainly, we can be more sure that shipbuilding starts to take off because obviously 
you need fleets of ships if you're going to go on crusade. Um, so yeah, over time, the Crusades are having a, a, lot, a very large economic impact, and obviously not just on England, because then you start to get these rivalries uh, with other countries who also send crusading forces, Germany and France and so on. Um, so um, this is all ways in which um, Europe is, is building up its, its economic um, power at this time. Okay, uh, a, a good question and a very good answer. Thank you. Right. Now, we've got a couple of questions here from uh, from Hannah Cusworth on Twitter. She uh, she asked a, a couple of good questions, so we've allowed her uh, two ones. So so the first one is, what do we know about women's experience of crusade? And she said that she's particularly fascinated by the fact that they were queens of Jerusalem. So I don't know if you've got yes. anything on that. Oh, yes. I've got a lot on that. Um, the first thing to say is, again, a little caveat, um, I think is important, that um, when we try and find out about women's experience of the Crusades, we have a, a problem. And that problem is that the material that we can gather, again, is mainly coming from these medieval chroniclers. Um, so whether those are Western chroniclers or uh, Christian chroniclers, as it were, uh, or Muslim chroniclers, depending on whether you're getting the Christian or the um, Muslim perspective. With the West, with the Western chroniclers, these are clergymen more often than not. Okay, and they're not just clergymen, but they're also a celibate clergy at this time. We've had um, a sort of great reform movement within the church in the 11th century, just before the start of the First Crusade, a crackdown on married priests and trying to uh, push the idea of a pure celibate clergy. So these people who are writing these chronicles, as I say, they're clergymen, um, and more often than not, they're quite suspicious of women. And we've got some sometimes quite often sort of misogynistic tropes coming through. Obviously, not always. It depends on the source. So but I think we just need to bear in mind, you know, who, who are writing these sources and the fact that they are being written by, by the clergy almost entirely at this period. And the other thing to say is, of course, that women are not in most of these, well, almost all of these chronicles, as it were, central to the narrative. It's the men, it's the deeds of the men that are important. So obviously, the women get slipped in, uh, you know, from time to time. Um, but, you know, um, <laughs> the, 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 there's no sort of um, a feminist line being pushed by any chronicler here. These are the narratives of men and their deeds of arms and so on. So anyway, we just need to bear those things in mind when we're thinking about how we can glean information about women's experience. But nevertheless, there is actually quite a lot that we can learn. I like to sort of think about women in sort of four categories here uh, with regard to the Crusades. So we have women crusaders themselves. Obviously, there are not many of them because uh, the Crusades are, are, are waged almost always by men, but we do have a few outstanding figures. But then my second category is really thinking about um, women who accompany, so they're not um, great leaders or warriors, but women who accompany the crusading armies. And we're talking about washerwomen, we're talking about um, prostitutes. Prostitutes always follow um, armies, whether they're crusading or not. Um, we have examples from some of the chroniclers of holy women, of nuns, or of people who have sort of um, mystic powers. And of course, um, sometimes we have the wives of crusaders themselves who come along with the expedition. Usually the wives are back home, um, keeping the, the, the fort going, the castle going or whatever. But, but some of them did accompany their husbands. So women accompanying in crusader armies is kind of my second category. 
Then, of course, and this is picked up by the question, we have um, the noble women themselves living and sometimes ruling in the crusader states. So noble women, very famously someone like Agnes de Courtenay, who has a really, really interesting um, and, and very important life in the crusader states. Um, but also the great queens of Jerusalem, like Melisande and Sibylla, who have a huge amount of power. Um, to some extent, they're, they're pawns of, of, of their husbands, but they nevertheless have a, have a lot of advocacy, a lot of patronage, um, and so on. So the noble women in the crusader states are, are sort of the third category. Um, and then also just to um, focus on some uh, wives of crusader kings. So I've already mentioned in the bracket of women crusaders, but just to pick out some wives of crusader kings, of course, the obvious one is Eleanor of Aquitaine, who goes with her husband, Louis VII, on the Second Crusade. So there's an example of a woman, a powerful woman, actually leading an entourage on crusade. Um, Margaret of Provence wife of Louis IX, who accompanies him um, on the Seventh Crusade. Um, similarly, Isabel of Aragon goes with Philip III. Um, Eleanor of Castile, who goes with Edward in the so-called Ninth Crusade. Um, and so, so you know, these, these women are accompanying their king husbands and providing um, a lot of experience and uh, a lot of um, comfort to their to, the, to their spouse while they're on crusade. Of course, some of them are looking from afar. As I say, some of them are back in back in their respective areas of France or Germany. So very famously, someone called like Adela of Blois, who writes these letters to Stephen of Blois on the First Crusade and even tells him off when he um, runs away um, at the Siege of Antioch and so on. Um, so these wives of either Crusader kings or of important um, noblemen within the crusading expedition. So you've got women crusaders, you've got women accompanying crusade armies, you've got the noble women and queens themselves in the crusader states, and then you've got wives of crusader kings and nobles. Brilliant. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, obviously, you've only had time to, to briefly go over that, um, but we must move on because uh, we've got lots to, to get through. So the next question from Hannah Cusworth was, uh, how did the Crusades change the medieval world? It's apparently it's a, a question she's often asked when she's, uh, when she's teaching. So obviously, she's a history teacher. Um, uh, so, so, so good luck with that. Um, so uh, a, a question that you've kind of touched on a bit with the economic thing earlier, I suppose, but I'm sure there's more to say. Yes. Yeah, so I've touched on some economic factors, which relate to England, but also more widely within Europe. Um, something that has been very much just been discussed in, in recent years by a historian like um, Sophie Therese Ambler, for example, is this idea that perhaps the Crusades led to some kind of weakening or loss of the idea of chivalry. So this medieval concept of the chivalric knight and what he's expected, how he's expected to behave on the battlefield, but also more generally. And an argument like that would go is that the more we get these holy wars in the Near East and the more acceptable it becomes to fight in these holy wars, there's then a move to expand these holy wars to other areas of the world. And I've already mentioned this with regard to the Baltic or against heretics in the south of France, 
yeah, or against pagans in the Baltic or whoever, but also increasingly in the 13th century against other Christians. So the papacy starts to use the idea of crusades um, against its own political enemies, enemies of the papal states. And then you see we have a problem because we've then got a holy war that is going to be waged Christian against Christian, which has papal blessing, but is Christian against Christian. And what a lot of recent historians have asked is, does this start to undermine the chivalric code, um, the idea that if there is war between Christians, it has to be very carefully circumscribed and um, fit certain characteristics and only at certain times of the year and so on. Um, So is that whole kind of chivalric code, does it start to be watered down as the papacy pushes for these holy wars. Now, as I say, obviously today we're talking about holy wars to the Near East, but I'm suggesting that there's a beginning of a slippery slope because once those wars then change to be about being about holy wars against Christians, then um, chivalry may, may, as it were, be in danger. Anyway, there's a great debate going on about this at the moment. So that's, you know, the weakening or the loss of chivalry is, is, is possibly something that we see happening. Um, I think, obviously, the Crusades, you're getting an increase of distrust and even, you know, well, and, and hatred uh, between Christians and, and Muslims during this period. Now, of course, at times of peace within the Crusader states, um, Muslims and Christians are living, you know, at times quite happily together and, and trading and so on, and even intermarrying and so on. But nevertheless, obviously, with these great crusades and with these great sieges and battles, um, the idea in the Christian West of the infidel is becoming more and more of a stereotype. Um, so um, that the, the infidel, the person who has put the places of Christ's life and passion on the line, who has has taken away our ability to go on pilgrimage to these places. Um, so the the idea of the infidel, this increasing sort of demonization of of Islam um, and and of Muslims, and obviously Muslim distrust uh, for Christians. Uh, you know the people who who believe in three gods. You know that's their idea of the Trinity and so on. So again, on their side, you're going to get get a kind of negative stereotyping of Christians. Um, So obviously, they start to know more about each other, but a lot of the rhetoric will, for obvious reasons, be be very negative. Um, Something else that springs to mind is the gradual undermining of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, the Fourth Crusade, as I mentioned earlier, we have the sack of Constantinople. So there you see, instead of going off to the Holy Land to fight the Muslims, the Christians end up fighting against fellow Christians. Yes, Greek Orthodox, but nevertheless fellow Christians. Um, and a lot of historians have argued that that onslaught um, in 1204 um, and the fact that Constantinople um, falls to the Crusaders weakens forever the city And that city is absolutely central to the Byzantine Empire so that it will then be in this much, this very weak state um, for decades and decades to come. And of course, finally, much, much later, it will fall to the Ottomans. So this idea that the Byzantine Empire and particularly Constantinople never recovered um, from from that um, from that sack by the Crusaders in, in 1204. 
Um, I mean, there are so many things I could say here. You have the growth of influence of the maritime republics as a result of, of our, our Near Eastern Crusades. Genoa and Venice um, are, are really taking off. Um, you, you see how important the Venetians are uh, for the Fourth Crusade. They really can hold the, the Crusaders to ransom, as it were. Um, the military orders are massively expanded. So we're talking about the Templars, who I've already mentioned in relation to banking, uh, but also the Hospitallers, the Teutonic Knights who start off in the Near East. Okay, they move to a different theatre of war to the Baltic eventually, but they started in the Holy Land. Um, there's, you know, there's just an opening up of the East to the West. So new foodstuffs and new types of exotic goods start to come in or as a result of these new trade routes that are being opened up. Um, so a lot more knowledge of, of um, Eastern practices, Eastern foods coming in, both Arabic and from the Byzantine world. Um, even something like, you know, castle building that we find in Wales in the 13th century with Edward I or something. Where, where does he base, how does he base his castles? Well, these are concentric castles, just like the type that we found earlier being built by the Hospitallers and the Templars in the Holy Land. So castle building is, is massively affected as a result of the Crusades. Um, I've also touched on the fact that as the papacy becomes more um, happy to launch these Crusades, more uh, uh, confident about launching these crusades to the Holy Land, it also starts to, to launch crusades elsewhere so that we get this great crusading movement throughout Europe, whether there are, there's a crusade to the Spain or to or the Baltic or to the south of France or against political enemies of the, the papal states. So crusading doesn't just become about the Near East, it becomes a, a much wider papally-driven um, enterprise. Some historians have said that that spirit of adventure, that religious devotion, that energy that we find with the Crusades has a knock-on effect when much, much later in the 15th century we get the discovery of the New World. So someone like Christopher Columbus thinking in that, you know, has that idea of crusade in the back of his mind. So pushing those much later discoveries, um, uh, you know, to find new places uh, and to meet new different people from us and so on. So possibly um, the sort of idea of crusades it's, and it gets romanticised over decades and centuries and so on kind of, kind of helps to spark this eventual interest um, in the discovery of the new world. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, the crusades have a profound impact on all sorts of aspects of the medieval world. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Crusades are often seen as kind of proto-colonial wars. So this idea of this imposition of Western ideals and models onto um, indigenous peoples. So um, were later Western colonial expansionist causes kind of affected again by crusade rhetoric and by, by crusade ideas? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Okay. Um, this one might be slightly more straightforward. We'll see. Um, uh, this is, again, from another teacher, Simon Beale on Twitter, uh, who says, the question my students always want answered is, what motivated the Crusades from 1095 to 1204? Okay, yes. Um, interesting that he stopped in, in 1204 with the sack of Constantinople. So, um, yes, we're, we're, we're not dealing with our whole period right down to, to 1291 there. Um, well, again, I'm afraid this is a very large question. Um, historians have come up with all sorts of, of different motivations, uh, religious, political, social, economic, um, for these basically 12th century crusades. Um, I think what I will do is just to sort of highlight a few very definite motivating factors that I think are important. So I think that the grant by the papacy of the remission of sins, which eventually will become formulated as the plenary indulgence, but really in the 12th century is is mainly about the remission of sins and so on. I think this is a a driving force. I think people um, want to be free from their sins. Uh, They want to, to, to wipe the slate clean. And they know that crusading will assure them that spiritual privilege. And as I say, I know an awful lot's been written about um, religious motivations, but you only have to look at someone like Robert of Clary talking about the Fourth Crusade and saying people joined because the crusade indulgence was so great. Um, so, So definitely, you know, religious motivations are important. Of course, when we think about the First Crusade, um, the Pope called for the First Crusade to help the Byzantines in the East. Alexius Komnenus had asked for, for help from the West um, because obviously the, um, the, the Byzantines are struggling against the Seljuk Turks at this time. So there's also this religious motivation of, of helping fellow Christians. Now, of course, we know that a lot of the, the First Crusaders, some of them were very cynical about um, that, uh, but certainly it's, it's there in the Pope's brief um, to, to try and, and help uh, 
the Byzantines. I think your average crusader would probably have been quite affected when he heard that um, Western pilgrimage was under threat in the Near East. So again, there's another religious uh, motivation, trying to help help pilgrims um, in the Holy Land whose roots have been disrupted as a result of these incursions by the Seljuk Turks. Um, if you want to think about other non-religious motivations, that there are many. Um, there is the very charismatic preaching that we see happening with these crusades. So take a figure like Bernard of Clairvaux on the Second Crusade. Um, he's preaching all over Europe in France and Germany. He's drawing large crowds. He's influencing kings to take the cross, Louis Seventh, Conrad III, and so on. So lots of very charismatic preaching um, as a motivation. I think crusaders are spurred on by the idea of the deeds of their ancestors, the glory that can pertain to their families if they take part in these great expeditions. Certainly kings and emperors think it will do their PR no harm, their public relations. Um, they take the cross often when they um, become kings, um, when they take the crown, as it were. Um, and often it's a way of showing that there is a new reign. Perhaps they're going to do things a little bit differently from their fathers. Um, so, yeah, great, great public relations for kings and emperors. Um, there's no doubt that there are ideas of adventure. Um, of course, I think this is going to come up, I suspect, later in the questions. The whole issue of the sort of younger son theory has perhaps been rather debunked these days. But nevertheless, people are looking for new experiences, the exotic East, Um Certainly at the time of the First Crusade, there'd been very bad harvest. There's famine in Europe. You know, people want something different and, and new. Of course, when they get out there, they don't necessarily like it. But there are all these kind of romantic and adventurous ideas associated with the Crusades. Um, and of course, Jerusalem and the Holy Sepulchre loom large um, in the consciousness of medieval people. Um, again, I'm, I'm coming a little bit back to a religious motivation there. But I mean, you only have to look at a, a Mappa Mundi, a map of... Um, any any medieval map, and you will see that Jerusalem is in the centre of that map. It's at the centre of the known world. Um, so Jerusalem is a very important political as well as, as religious uh, entity. There's the idea of the apocalypse, the end of days. Um, certainly, again, with regard to the First Crusade, there was an idea that the world was going to come to an end very soon. Um, at the end of the 11th century, people want to put themselves um, right with God uh, and, and they want to, to be in Jerusalem at the end of time. Um, so, yeah, and, and then there, there are the economic ideas. We've talked a lot about mercantile activity. Um, so a whole plethora of motivations. And, and I think it's really important to think about there being lots of motivations for people taking part. And that a, an individual crusader doesn't just have to have one motivation. He can be, you know, he, he can be conventionally very pious. He can also be hoping to... Um, be in favour with his Lord. He can be hoping that there might be some land parceled out to him. He can be inspired by charismatic preaching. Um, you know, he, he, an individual, you know, most of us have, have lots of, of motivations for action. So I don't think we should just be thinking, well, this must be either about religious motivations or, or political. Um, and, you know, I, I think these days in the historiography, historians do try and show that that mixed motivation um and i think that's important and and it always interests me what my uh, students think motivates crusaders and um and and i think sometimes um because obviously for for obvious reasons the crusades gets quite a, a negative um 
stereotyping quite often. And so people say, oh, it's just all greed. Um, but it, as I'm trying to show, it's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. And yes, I'm sure, of course, there's greed, uh, but there's also genuine piety. Um, there's also the wish for adventure and so on. Um, things get a bit different when we move into the 13th century because crusading becomes um, much more standardised and organised, particularly with, by a pope called Innocent III at the beginning of the 13th century. But the question was really uh, mainly about, about 12th century crusading, um, when things are, are, are still a bit, a bit looser in format. Um, but there's a mixture. There's religious, political, social, economic motivations. They're, all, they're all playing their part. So, so in short, it's complicated. It's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Mr. Williams on Twitter, again, uh, wants to know, why was the first crusade so successful in establishing the crusade estates? Right. Yes. Another excellent question. Um, well, th- there are many answers, as usual. Disunity of the Muslim world is very important, I think, here. Because later on, with later crusades, um, you're going to see a lot more Muslim unity, which is why they're less successful, you know, whether that's Nur ad-Din or whether that's Saladin. Um, but yes, at the time of the First Crusade, the Muslim world is, is, is disunited. You've got these great caliphates, but they're not working together in harmony. The Fatimids and the Abbasids are actually of a, of a different faith. So the Fatimids are Shiite and the Abbasids are Sunni. And this, of course, isn't helping for cohesion either. So you have to wait for a great leader like Saladin, um, who will um, bring together uh, this, this great sort of Ayyubid power much later on before you're really going to get unity in the Muslim world. So disunity of the Muslim world um, at the time of the First Crusade. Um, the First Crusaders are fighting against the Seljuks at the beginning of the expedition, Obviously, um, it's the Fatimids who are in Jerusalem by the end. But again, that gives you a, a sort of um, a sense of, of the, the fragmentation of, of, of the Muslim forces at this time. Um, other factors, the powerful preaching of Urban II. So Pope Urban II at the Council of Claremont in 1095. He's the Pope who really comes up with and cements the idea of crusade, this idea of an armed penitential pilgrimage. And it just seems to have had massive appeal like no other crusade did because it was such a new idea. Okay. And obviously, Urban II, there's been a lot of discussion about how he was trying to bring Europe together to trying to, trying to prevent sort of factionalism within Europe, um, to give them, um, a goal to work towards. And of course, that goal is, is to win back the holy places and to win back Jerusalem. So very powerful, charismatic preaching by, by Urban II. Um, the novelty of the idea, as I say, we've not had a crusade before. Popes in the past, like Gregory VII, may have dreamed of a sort of proto-crusade, but, you know, with Urban, it becomes reality. And people are intrigued by the East, um, and they want to take part in this, this wonderful armed pilgrimage as they see it. Some may have genuinely wanted to help the Byzantine Empire. As I say, as I was saying earlier, certainly they want to try and um, free up the, the Christian pilgrim sites once more in the Near East. We have very strong leadership during the First Crusade. Um, interestingly enough, of course, no kings are involved in the First Crusade. And I think that is a, a major reason why it's, it's successful, um, because once you have kings involved, you have massive egos 
Uh, not that the egos of the nobles who did p- take part was not great. Uh, we look at Bermond or um, Hugh of Vermondois or uh, Baldwin, and you know these are alpha males, and, and they're jostling with each other and, and their armies and so on, and they all converge on, on Constantinople. Um, but they were very able uh, military commanders, um, and their troops respected them. We've talked about the feudal system of, of lords of, and vassals and so on. Um, and... Although, of course, some, uh, you know, at points they go with their own way, Baldwin goes north to form Edessa and so on. Um, you know, the army sizes are large enough to take Jerusalem. There's been a big enough response to the call. And, of course, they're being helped by the Byzantines. The Byzantines um, all the time are acting as a moderating force on the Crusader armies, um, uh, but they're also helping them strategically to, to win important towns at, at key times. I think the involvement of the papal legate, Adamar of Le Puy, is again important for keeping the morale of the, of the armies together, um, particularly obviously uh, in the early stages of the crusade, giving it a kind of um, moral uh, sense, um, trying to perhaps prevent the, the worst of the crusader um, excesses. And you need a disciplined army if you're going to be uh, successful on the battlefield. Um and then I suppose the obvious reason that, uh, that attack is much easier than defence. So carving out these crusader, these four crusader kingdoms as a result of the first crusade, you know, winning them, hard though it is, is easier than then defending them. Uh, because defending them means you need constant manpower. And of course, after the first crusade, most crusaders went home. So uh, yeah, you may be able to carve them out, but can you then keep them in the long term? And obviously the, success, the su- successive crusades are trying to keep them in the long term because the states have been established. Um, so they're trying to do something rather different. So these are all really important reasons why the First Crusade is so successful. Um, I suppose if I had to pick out one, it would probably be that first one, the disunity of the Muslim world. But nevertheless, you know, we've got to give it to those First Crusaders. We've got to give it to Godfrey of Bouillon um, and Raymond of Toulouse, um, these great strategic um, leaders of the First Crusade. You know, they were operating in a terrain that was wholly unknown to them, the heat, um, you know, and, and, and so on. And, and, you know, they didn't know what sort of equipment they would need out there. They're, they're very heavily armed, some of them. Um, and, you know, they didn't know who what the terrain was going to be like. And yet they managed to carve out these four great crusader states, Edessa, Tripoli, Antioch, and then, of course, the crowning glory, the kingdom of Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, right, we've got a, a, another good one from Vanya Ivanovov on uh, Twitter, um, uh, who wants to know, it, it would be interesting to know to what extent those areas outside of Europe and the Mediterranean knew of the Crusades. For example, did any word of the Crusades spread to parts of Asia or Africa? Um, so uh, so another um, quite, uh, quite diverting question that uh, I'm sure has a complicated answer. <laughs> yes, um, a bit... bit, bit left field, but that's excellent. Uh, Again, the answer is to a great extent, crusading, as I've been trying to show, is becoming, obviously this is an anachronistic term, but it's becoming an international phenomenon during the high Middle Ages. So news, word of the crusade is spreading throughout Europe and beyond to Asia and Africa. So how does it spread to Asia? Well, through these trade routes that are being developed. Um, so as I say, a lot of recent historians have talked about um, the silk routes and so on, uh, the trade routes that are linking Europe um, to Asia. 
Very important here, I think, is to think about the Mongols who are going to come onto the scene, particularly in the 13th century as Mongol power grows. Um, They are opponents of the Muslims. And so at the beginning, the Crusaders think that they might be able to make deals with the Mongols and harness Mongol power uh, to help against the Saracens, against the infidel. Well, of course, they soon realize that uh, the Mongols are doing things for themselves and and, and no one else, as it were. Um, But obviously, um, the Mongols are therefore coming into contact with Crusaders. They're um, making treaties or at least having talks with them. They're also coming into contact all the time with with Muslims. They're often overrunning Muslim territories and so on. So... um, they are, are are spreading the idea of, of crusade throughout Asia because they, of course, are moving eventually into China and so on, the Mongol hordes and Russia, the steppes of Russia. So definitely the crusades are getting known in, in Asia in our time. Africa as well is very important. If we think of where the Crusades were targeted at, um, if we think that both the Fifth and the Seventh Crusades had Egypt as their target, um, then obviously, uh, therefore, Africa is very important. The Crusaders hoped that if they could take key posts in Egypt, they would then get into Palestine, they would get into the Holy Land that way, as it were, uh, moving up towards uh, Jerusalem, which is always the eventual goal. Um, so people in North Africa, you know, they, they would know about the arrival of crusaders. They would see their towns being taken. They knew that um, North Africa was very important strategically to the crusaders. Think about the Eighth Crusade, um, where the, the goal is Tunis. This is where Louis IX, in fact, um, ends his days, doesn't he, at the, um, the Eighth Crusade in Tunis. Um, so, Particularly North Africa is very important for the crusading movement. And again, we have the growth of trade um, routes throughout North Africa. As a result, trading always follows the crusades. Remember, of course, that North Africa is also linked to um, Spain um, because at this time we have this great process of reconquista going on in Spain. Um, But of course, the Almoravids and the um, Almohads, the Muslim groups who live in Spain against whom the Christians are fighting, they originally come from North Africa. So you've got those political links still being kept up between uh, Spain and North Africa. And eventually the Reconquista is going to take on the attributes of a crusade. It's going to get papal blessing. Um, so again, North Africa is intricately involved, not just in these uh, Near Eastern Crusades, but also in these Spanish Crusades. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, the Islamic world, um, if we think that the Islamic world in our period, period spans this huge area, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Turkey, and so on. And you've got these different caliphates, the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt, the Abbasid Caliphate, Iraq, um, the Ayyubids who take off with Saladin. We've talked a lot about the Seljuk Turks. Um, These are are all these different uh, Muslim powerhouses um, throughout um, parts of Asia, throughout parts of Africa. Um, and, And, you know, the Muslim chroniclers start to recall, record um, the 
the feats of the Crusaders, and, and word spreads. Um, so word spreads from the Middle East um, into Asia, into Africa. And of course, the Byzantine world is very effective. We've talked about the Fourth Crusade um, to Constantinople and so on. So these much more sort of far-flung parts of, of the known world are starting to be impacted by this, as it were, international phenomenon. The next question, um, what was the impact of the Crusades on the Jews? And I'm terribly sorry, I didn't get the uh, the name of the person who asked that question, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try and find it and uh, put it onto our, the show notes. So uh, what was the impact of the Crusades on the Jews? Another massive question. Um, many of our listeners will know that there were these dreadful pogroms against Jewish communities as Crusaders moved through Europe on their way to the Near East to take part in different expeditions. Um, particularly they'll probably think about the First and the Second Crusade, uh, but also some of these more popular movements like the Shepherd's Crusade of 1251 or the Children's Crusade of 1215. So there's an obvious impact there, um, Jews being killed by crusaders, um, particularly um, if they won't convert to Christianity. So this idea of forced baptism that we're getting. Um, So the Crusades, according to many historians, have a very big part to play in the gradual deterioration of Christian-Jewish relations in the West. So we can think about all sorts of possible reasons why relations deteriorate, you know, things like um, the burning of the Talmud in the 1240s or something, but the Crusades would be another, a major sort of milestone, another major factor there. Um, Of course, one reason why the Crusades are so important for Jewish communities is because of this role of the Jewish moneylender that we've already talked about. The fact that Crusaders have to raise money um, to go on crusade. And increasingly, the church is trying to prevent fellow Christians uh, from lending money at interest. Uh, This idea that usury is is a sin. And so who do the Crusaders turn to? Well, it seems that increasingly they may have turned to these Jewish moneylenders. And this, of course, is going to stir up anti-Jewish feeling. And it's going to encourage anti-Jewish stereotyping. So the idea of the kind of evil Jewish uh, wicked uh, moneylender. So I think that's another way in which um, the Crusades have a very negative impact on the Jews. Um, A lot of historians have said that um, the persecution of Jews that we find by these Crusade armies um, may have led to, as it were, the development of more kind of persecuting mentalities against not just Jews, but also increasingly against other minority groups, um, whether they're heretics or pagans um, and so on. So perhaps um, these attacks actually lead to the deterioration of um, the the welfare of other minority groups um, as well as the Jews themselves. Um, Jews are definitely increasingly being scapegoated as infidels. And again, that infidel language, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Crusades. Um, but in a sense, the Jews are worse for many Crusaders than the Muslims because, um, you know, the Muslims uh, may be very bad because they've taken, they've seized the places of Christ's life and, and passion and so on. But the Muslims, according to the Crusaders, did not actually crucify Christ and the Jews did. So we get this idea in the Chronicle accounts, why are we going all the way to the Holy Land to fight against the Muslim infidel when there's actually a, an even worse infidel in our midst in Europe, and that's the Jew, and the Jew has actually crucified Christ. And surely we must put our own house in order, as it were, we must cleanse ourselves and Europe before we move on to the Near East. So 
you know, lots of reasons why the Crusades have an impact. Don't forget about Jewish communities actually within the Crusader states as well, um, who are often having to live alongside the Crusaders and also um, fellow Muslims. And things like the fact that Jews are are allowed to visit Jerusalem, but they can't actually live there. They can live anywhere else in the Crusader states, but not actually in, in their holy city itself. Um, and they have to pay taxes to their Christian rulers and so on. So again, uh, in a natural, uh, a massive impact. Um, so we obviously, when we start to think about the Crusades, we think about the, the Muslim enemy and how they're depicted. But as I say, looking at how these Crusades actually have a negative impact on other minority groups, and, and most profoundly, the Jews. Absolutely. Very interesting. Right, last one, um, uh, and and then we must finish. Uh, and again, it's another counterfactual from Chris Rowe on Twitter. Uh, big question, uh, but briefly, <laughs> he says, what would the world be like if the Crusades had never happened or uh, had they not failed? Okay, yeah. So this is a ginormous question, uh, but I will try and summarise. So if they'd never happened, um, well, arguably there might be less tension between Christians and Muslims today, possibly. Um uh, Although, in fact, you know, there have been so many um, more recent conflicts in the Middle East that, as I say, that's very arguable. But certainly we've talked about how sort of stereotypes of Muslim infidels and so on have have, have remained till today. Um, you know, maybe we wouldn't be so interested in the Middle East um, as we are um, if it hadn't been for the Crusades. Uh, so the Crusades associated with the sort of exotic ideas of adventure and romance. Um, think of the 19th century novels of Walter Scott, for example. Um, so our perception of the, the Middle East might be rather different as well. Um, we've talked about the fact that these leaders, whether they're Western or, or Eastern, George Bush or Osama bin Laden still use crusade rhetoric. So again, um, if they'd never happened, we wouldn't have that rhetoric. Um, Crusades are often seen as kind of proto-colonial wars. So this idea of this imposition of Western ideals and models onto um, indigenous peoples. So um, were later Western colonial expansionist causes kind of affected again by crusade rhetoric and by by crusade ideas. So, so, you know, the, the, the ideas behind the Crusades and the rhetoric, I think, still has profound implications today. Um, maybe it would have taken much longer for new ideas, for new foods, for new customs from the East to have reached the West if we hadn't had the Crusades. Maybe the Crusades helped to speed up that process that we've talked about in medieval Europe. Certainly, it seems that we get a lot more Arab learning, reaches the West, um, and so, therefore, in the long term, kind of knowledge of, of classical texts, Greek and Roman texts, which had been lost in the West, but come through Arab learning from the East. So if they'd never happened, um, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, things would have been different. Um, if they hadn't failed, so I suppose by that, um, the question means if the Crusader states had managed to be maintained, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, we might have the Crusaders might have clung on to that very small strip of territory um, and to, to Acre and so on rather longer, um, and maybe um, therefore you know they might have had experience against further problems which were coming down the road, which is the problem of the Ottomans. Um, so perhaps in in short in the short term um, there might have been more. Uh, able resistance against Ottoman power. Um, but, you know, arguably the Crusader states really couldn't have held out in the long term. They were, you know, the, there were just, there wasn't enough manpower from Europe. And, and, the, and the Crusader states were surrounded by these great Muslim powers um, who were on the ascendancy, the Mamluks and so on. Um, 
I suppose if they hadn't failed uh, again, um, you know, would that have helped for continued Western influence in the East? Would we have had more mixings of people? Would we have had greater trade and so on? Um, would we have perhaps been more influenced by Eastern ideas, by Eastern philosophy and so on um, throughout the medieval and into the early modern period? But as I say, because the Ottomans are going to come on the scene and become the big threat to medieval and early modern Europe anyway, um, I don't think... Uh, the Crusades as such make such a big difference in our history. Okay, thank you. Right, well, that is amazing. We've covered so much ground there, and we still, you know, we still have another fifteen questions we could have gone through, but uh, but 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 we uh, we we can't do that. <laughs> you've, you've you've talked for long enough, and that's been absolutely great. I mean, what what a what a what an insight into uh, into not only what uh, what uh, what we know about the Crusades, but but some of the most recent research as well. So thank you very much, uh, Professor Rebecca Rist, for that. What one last thing, I guess. Sorry to ask you for, for, for more, but I mean, what's 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 your research now? What are you taking on? Have you got any particular projects that uh, listeners could keep an eye out for? Yes. So I'm very interested in medieval heresy, and that comes out of my original interest in the Albigensian Crusades. So uh, I'm hoping that the next book is going to be, well, working title, Popes and Heretics. Um, so coming out of my um, crusade studies, but with particular interest, not on crusades against Islam, but a cru- crusades against heretics and political enemies of the papacy. That was Rebecca Rist. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear David Oloshugger discussing the new series of his BBC programme, A House Through Time. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.